This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. Welcome, welcome. David Rutledge here with you. And we have a really interesting program this week that focuses on a question that I find myself turning over from time to time. And the question is, what use is philosophy? And I don't mean that in a cynical or hopeless way. Obviously, if you're bothering to listen to this program at all, then you probably think philosophy is interesting and fun, and I'm not about to try to persuade you otherwise. But is philosophy more than just interesting and fun? Is philosophy just abstract theorizing, or does it help us in some materially significant way? Well, this is a question that's been asked over and over again for pretty much as long as philosophy has been around, and it's often been asked by philosophers themselves, and sometimes the answer comes up negative. But for philosophers working in the domain of science, it's a resounding yes vote, and this week we're going to be hearing some philosophers of biology explain why. Earlier this year, the Australian National University's Centre for Philosophy of the Sciences held a Philosophy of Biology workshop, and producer Kate Lynch was there to talk with some of the attendees. Most people, if they've heard of philosophy of biology at all, they think of bioethics. This is things like the ethical consequences of biological technologies, biological research and medical interventions. But philosophy of biology is not bioethics. So what is it? Rin Koeve is a postdoctoral research fellow in philosophy at the University of Sydney. When people outside academia ask, what do you do? And I say philosophy, and then they ask, okay, what kind of philosophy? And then I say philosophy of biology. Then <laughs> what I've observed is that, you know, rather than clarifying anything, uh, it confuses people. So like they know what philosophy is, they know what biology is, but when you put these things together, things get confused. So there's something about this word off <laughs> that creates a chaos. I don't know. So anyway, but these kinds of situations have forced me to like think a little bit more and articulate a little bit more what philosophy of biology is. So I think there are actually two things that philosophy of biology is. And these two things are like map onto the two meanings of this ambiguous word biology. So yeah, on the one hand, what is biology? It's a domain of reality, like things that live. On the other hand, it's the scientific discipline that studies this domain of reality. And correspondingly, I think like under this label philosophy of biology, people actually do two different kinds of things. First, they think philosophically about this domain directly. Uh, trying to understand better the nature of the biological world and the knowledge that philosophers of biology produce and biologists produce, like they complement one another. On the other hand, philosophy of biology is, like, has to do with the second meaning of biology. It's thinking philosophically about what biologists do about the discipline, like what is the nature of the knowledge that they produce given the kinds of methods they use, how do these pieces of knowledge produced by biological sciences relate to various knowledge claims in different fields of research and also like practical life and so on. So the philosophy of biology is a branch of philosophy interested in both the biological world itself and also what the biologists are doing. That is, the research practices and the knowledge generated by biologists when they are studying the natural world. So what exactly are those philosophical interests? 
Well, philosophers of science are interested in not only understanding and describing scientific practice, but thinking about how science should be practiced and how it should be understood and communicated. And it's this normative stance that you see a lot of philosophers of biology take. They're not only interested in understanding biology, but are often suggesting ways in which philosophical approaches can help biologists. To tell us a bit more about how philosophers can help biologists, here's Aja Watkins. She's an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. One of the ways in which philosophers are really good at helping out scientists has to do with the scientists' use of concepts. For example, historically, there's been a pretty big debate about what the right species concept is. So are organisms part of the same species when they have similar morphology or other traits, when they share ancestry, when they have the same DNA, when they can reproduce with one another? So each of these definitions is going to have strengths and shortcomings, and philosophers can help assess those. So if we start using a different species concept, for instance, we're going to end up counting species differently. And this matters a lot for projects like in conservation biology. Okay, so you've got philosophers of biology then playing this very important conceptual clarification role. Is there anything else they do to help biologists or other scientists? I think so. So I think that philosophers are also really good at helping scientists to refine and improve their methodologies. For example, sometimes we're in a position to say things like, for instance, this modeling assumption isn't appropriate in this context, or this statistical analysis technique is better suited for this project than that other one, or here are some ways that your study design risks importing in your preconceived notions about what you're trying to observe or measure. So oftentimes philosophers are also collaborating directly with scientists to figure out how we might be more helpful to the scientists in this kind of way. And in the meantime, we have the privilege of learning about their work and then seeing if anything going on in the scientific practice might help us to refine our philosophical views. And I, I do also want to mention that one thing I haven't brought up yet um, has to do with ethics. So topics like data ethics and research ethics are really important, and I think that philosophers of science, maybe especially philosophers of biology, are really interested in these subjects and in affecting scientific practice um, in that way as well. But I feel that oftentimes philosophy gets kind of equated with ethics, and so I think one really important lesson for scientists to learn is that we can potentially give recommendations to them in other areas as well, like related to the concepts they use and their methodology. I don't like to think of there as being a very hard and fast distinction between philosophy and science. I like to think of these two disciplines, if you will, being on a spectrum. Um, historically, that has been the case. You know, we had natural philosophers in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, so I like to think of my work being able to contribute in that way. I mean, actually helping scientists think about their concepts that are central to their empirical practices. That's Caleb Hazelwood. He's a graduate student in philosophy at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. I think that when a scientist goes into the lab or goes out into the field and they take measurements or they build models, there are a lot of concepts that go into what they're doing. Um, and it's helpful to have philosophers who are thinking about those concepts and thinking about those theories and doing a bit of that theoretical work. Okay, so can you give me an example of one of these kind of tricky concepts in biology that the philosophers can help with? Yeah, absolutely. So a case that I'm very interested in is the case of biological individuals. So what does it mean to be an individual from a biological perspective? Now, you know, we, we think of ourselves as individuals, 
And that seems obvious enough. But when we start to think of the 13 trillion cells that are in and on our bodies, these microbial cells that are not of the species Homo sapiens, it starts to blur the boundaries quite a bit. So here's another instance, I think, where philosophers of biology can help tidy up these concepts. Okay. And how does a a philosophical understanding of individuality in this sense, um, how is that likely to impact what the biologists are doing in practice? Well, for one thing, it encourages clarity. It encourages clarity in uh, biological writing because sometimes we use the term individual or we use the term species or use the term gene. And really, we have different definitions in mind. So this this more specificity, this more clarity can help scientists and philosophers avoid talking past each other and avoid disagreements uh, that really are born just out of the multiple meanings of a term, of a very useful term that is entrenched in scientific practice. And do you think the best approach there then is to um, gain clarity by looking at these multiple different ways people are using a concept, so more of a descriptive project, or would you take more of a normative stance that there is a better way of using a concept that should be used in the biological sciences? I like to think there's a time and a place for both. So philosophers often like to use the term uh, conceptual engineering. They sometimes think of themselves as concept engineers, so they Uh, have a sort of made-to-order concept they build that fits a need in scientific practice. But I also like to call myself, at times, a conceptual referee. And that's... um, I like that (laughs) term, conceptual referee. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, in those cases, you come into a situation, you might have a dispute, right, where um, a conceptual term that seems very deeply important to a scientific practice is understood differently by a bunch of different groups of scientists And it sometimes takes the philosopher's sort of bird's eye view to help see what's happening in that dispute and play the role of conceptual referee. I came to philosophy of science through working on philosophy of biology. Um, My existing publications are on topics like philosophy of paleontology, philosophy of microbiology, philosophy of developmental biology, philosophy of model-based biology, and philosophy of human evolutionary biology. Um, One in-progress project that I have with a collaborator, her name's Marina DeMarco, um, that project has to do with the concept of biological sex. So this is one of the areas where we think that scientists could use some input from philosophers in order to gain conceptual clarity. I also um, work in philosophy of the geosciences and philosophy of climate science. So, for example, my dissertation research was about using episodes of climate change in Earth's deep past that significantly resemble contemporary climate change, as a source of evidence about our current climate crisis. And one of the things I got really interested in as a result of this project was integrating philosophy of biology and philosophy of the earth sciences, both because the biological sciences actually have a lot to do with geosciences like climate science, and because I think that philosophy of biology serves as a really good model for how philosophy of the geosciences can be grounded in scientific practice. For example, the work I'm presenting at this conference is about how analogous coral reef ecosystems in the deep past and the changes they underwent as a result of past episodes of climate change can help tell us about how contemporary reef ecosystems might respond to contemporary climate change. And so in this presentation, I talk about what makes these paleo data a good source of evidence for conservation biologists and also about how the priorities of conservation biologists are helping to direct the paleoecological research. Um, Finally, I should say I'm also starting to think more broadly about the environmental sciences. 
So these appeal to me as a subject of my research, both because they sit really nicely at the intersection of biology and the geosciences, and also because I care really deeply about environmental causes and the issues that we face today. So one of the ways I think philosophers could get involved here is to help environmental scientists navigate all of the different values and different interested parties that might influence their work. So like policymakers, the general public, industry, non-human entities like species or ecosystems. So each of these groups have different priorities and interests. And I think philosophers might be really good at helping scientists to deal with this complexity or analyze the ways in which it affects their work. For example, since I've been visiting here in Australia, I've met with a bunch of scientists whose work is used to inform policy around forest management and water resource management, obviously two enormously challenging topics as we face the effects of climate change. And these scientists are communicating to me concern about the ways in which their work is being used in a policymaking context or interpreted by the broader public. And as I'm meeting with them, I keep thinking like, hey, maybe I could help you out with that. So you would serve as a sort of translator from science into the public via philosophy. Yeah, yeah. So this is something I'm like really hoping to explore in the next few years. Um, so, of course, topics in the environmental sciences are uh, inevitably going to involve the biological sciences as well. So um, hopefully my background in philosophy of biology is going to be helpful here. Um, but again, I also think that philosophy of biology serves as a really great model for how to do philosophy of science in a way that engages directly with science and focuses on the questions that are useful to scientists. On Radio National and the ABC Listen app, you're listening to The Philosopher's Zone and a program this week about the philosophy of biology. Earlier this year, the Centre for Philosophy of the Sciences at the Australian National University hosted a Philosophy of Biology workshop, and producer Kate Lynch got along to talk with some of the participants about how their work as philosophers helps the scientists. What I'm doing is maybe less about helping the biologists. It's more helping the other people who want to use biological knowledge for some other purposes. So that's how I think of the, the goals of my research. Like in general, I think one, like you can ask what is philosophy, yeah? Therefore, what is philosophy of biology? And I think one thing that does characterize philosophy or like many of these things that we call philosophy is this bridging function. You want to understand like, how does it all fit together? Like these various knowledges that we gain from different disciplines. How does that all fit together? So yeah, I, what I'm doing is that I'm trying to understand, for example, like if we often hear how human traits is are claimed to have genetic causes and these kinds of claims are, they're made in the context of different types of scientific research contexts. And often these claims, like this knowledge that a human trait has genetic causes, it's, it's not going to stay within the science. It's often like used outside the specific science as well. Absolutely. In the public domain, there's lots of talk about genetic causation, lots of implications for if something is genetically caused or not. Yeah. So this kind of information, it often has like practical values. So people, for example, might think that knowing whether or not some trait, I don't know, disease or cognitive ability has genetic causes, has like implications for which kinds of uh, environmental interventions 
might be effective if our aim, for example, is to avoid some disease or make it the case that I don't know, our population is more cognitively able, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in order to use genetic knowledge for these kinds of purposes, we need to understand like what is the information conveyed with these claims of oh, this trait has genetic causes. And I think philosophy can do a lot to understand the content of such claims because the content is not trivial at all. Because as we know, often science and lay discourse uses like similar sounding words, let's say same words. We use the word cause in a scientific context. We use the same word in, in some pre-theoretical context. We talk of a gene in pre-theoretic context. We talk of genes in scientific context. But what's going on is that even though we use the same word, the concepts being expressed with the word can significantly differ in these different contexts. And therefore, the claim, oh, let's say, cognitive ability has genetic causes, if this claim is uttered in the scientific context, it can mean something significantly different from what it would mean in a lay context. Moreover, it could mean significantly different things in different uh, research contexts. But, you know, there might be this temptation to interpret the scientific claim in terms of our pre-theoretic concepts. And if we do that, things can go wrong, yeah. <laughs> misinterpret uh, the scientific claim. So one thing that I think philosophers are quite good at doing is like explicating, clarifying uh, what these words mean in different research contexts. And this will help to clarify the implications of different scientific findings. So it sounds like the role of your, there's kind of two roles to your work, and that's conceptual clarification about important terms used in science and in the, you know, the public discourse like causation, but also to do some sort of translating or mapping between the way people speak about these things in each to see whether, you know, claims in one can be used to make claims in the other. Yeah, I guess you could put it like that. It's like trans, well, first of all, understanding the content of scientific claims. And yes, you're right. Like you, I'm mostly these days interested in what does this tiny word cause mean in the context of scientific causal claims. So yeah, first of all, we want to understand what does it mean for one thing to be a cause of another in the first place. And that's not obvious often. And then there's this translation task to translate this scientific claim into some other language. It could be the language of uh, like our everyday life. It could be the language of some other scientific field. So yeah, earlier I said that uh, I'm not really interested in uh, helping biologists, but I think that the kind of work that I am describing, a side effect of it might be that it actually also helps biologists because uh, that's going to be a maybe bold and arrogant claim. Mm-hmm. But, you know, scientists are also lay people. They also share the lay beliefs, uh, lay biases that we, we all have. And these biases get imported into scientific context as well, which means that scientists themselves, like, of course, they're going to be super good at using their methods and so on. But when it comes to interpreting the findings of the science they do, they might also get distracted by the lay biases, the lay concepts they use in different contexts, which means that this kind of philosophical project of clarifying the content of scientific concepts, for example, the concept of being a cause, might actually also help to prevent 
the fact that scientists themselves in the context of doing science, like by accident, uh, use the lay concept of say cause when communicating the implications of their findings. For Caleb Hazelwood, getting the terminology and the definitions right is really crucial. And not just for philosophical reasons, but for reasons that have direct bearing on scientific research and results. Some people, when they say individual, they mean something like, from a biological perspective, an entity that can evolve by natural selection, right? But in order to evolve by natural selection, you have to have a few things. You have to be able to uh, vary. There has to be variation. There has to be variation in fitness, and that variation in fitness has to be heritable. So you have to be able to form these lineages that can branch out or shrink depending on how fit you are in your environment. And so obviously I and my parents and my hypothetical offspring are going to form a pretty neat and tidy parent offspring lineage. And we can track how successful my lineage does throughout evolutionary time. But what about me and those 13 trillion cells I mentioned earlier? We all have a bunch of different lineages. And those cells uh, are hopping between you and myself right now as we speak. So when you have cases of these different species, different lineages living together, but some of those symbiotic partners can jump ship at any time, then their fitness is no longer intertwined. And if you think that an individual from a biological perspective is that kind of definition, then you've got a very, very messy case when you start thinking about humans and their microbes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I mean, this is a particularly uh, pertinent case at the moment when people are starting to learn so much about the microbes that live on and in them um, and how they, they could be reciprocal behavioral interactions. Does this individuality literature um, have any implications for that microbiome type work as well? Well, yes. At this very conference, um, we've had folks such as uh, we've had some folks such as Emily Park and Maureen O'Malley, some some heavy-hitting philosophers of microbiology talking about conceptual issues and necessary distinctions in microbial medicine. Um, and so when people start thinking about the microbiome from a medical perspective, we have even more of these kinds of conceptual uh, refereeing, uh, acts of conceptual refereeing that are necessary. Um, and that has obviously huge practical implications um, as we begin to develop and, and, and research uh, Uh, treatments that that target the microbiome specifically. Aja Watkins is also interested in how scientists shape and frame the concepts they're working with, particularly the concept of biological sex. The concept of biological sex is kind of one of these concepts that biologists among the rest of us really take for granted. Um, So right now, the kind of top contender for a useful concept of biological sex among biologists is what's called the gametic definition of sex. And this says that you're a male if and only if you produce or have the capacity to produce tiny gametes, and you're a female if and only if you're the kind of organism that produces or has the capacity to produce large gametes. Um, And we think that, first of all, this definition has several problems. Like, it's not so easy to spell out exactly what a large gamete is and exactly what a small gamete is. So there are some problems there. Um, But we also want to kind of put on the table the possibility that the concept of biological sex itself is sort of misleading and that we should um, think about other ways to do 
inquiry about the sorts of variables we're interested in, like gametes or hormones or um, different kinds of phenotypes, without invoking the concept of biological sex at all. Right. So having an alternative set of concepts or an alternative way of looking at the sex concept, do you think that could have an influence then on how um, experiments are set up or conclusions are drawn? Yeah, I mean, we hope so. So one of the things we um, kind of really advocate for is some, so sometimes bio biologists and um, biomedical practitioners are really using sex as a proxy for the variables they're actually interested in. So you might like go to the doctor and write down that you're a female and your doctor is going to make inferences from that about things they're actually interested in, like your hormone levels or what kinds of um, organs you have. And uh, we would encourage scientists to instead just ask those questions directly. Um, and if those are questions that they can't ask directly to maybe figure out ways of measuring the variables they're actually interested in rather than just rely on sex as a proxy for the things that we um, actually want to understand. And what's your experience with the uptake from the sciences of philosophical analysis and different kinds of philosophical ideas from this field? Um, not good. So I think, I mean, I'm currently facing sort of two problems here. One is as a philosopher trying to talk to scientists, and the other is as like an early career person trying to often talk to more senior people. Um, so it's kind of hard to like disentangle the effects of mm. um, those two features of myself. Um, yeah, so I do hope, for instance, that like as I progress in my career that scientists will take me more seriously. Um, but I also think there's room for kind of like a larger culture shift in how scientists think about philosophy of science as fitting in with their with their discipline. So um, yeah, like I mentioned this problem where I think some scientists equate philosophy with ethics and maybe come to us to consult on ethical questions. And like maybe they're interested in whether their experimental setup is ethical or not. Um, but I think they could potentially come to us for lots of other things too. So philosophy of biology asks philosophical questions about the biological world and the study of that world, the biological sciences. Sometimes there are age-old philosophical questions that findings in biology are shedding new light on, like what does it mean to be an individual? Or how do we understand human nature? And sometimes there are new philosophical questions that are born out of a biological understanding of the world. Do genes or the environment matter most in determining who we are? Is genuine altruism possible under evolution? And can evolution explain all of human behaviour? And then sometimes, questions arise about what biologists should be doing. What should conservation biologists try to conserve, and why? Often, these questions hinge on the meanings of the concepts employed by biologists. Terms like species, or biodiversity, or individual. Understanding which concepts are being employed and making recommendations for how to think about concepts can make a tangible difference to biological theory, biological practice and biological applications. For The Philosopher's Zone, this is Kate Lynch. And Kate Lynch is a lecturer in philosophy of science at the University of Melbourne. We also heard Aja Watkins, assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. 
Caleb Hazelwood. He's a student in philosophy at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. And Rin Koeve, who's a postdoctoral research fellow in philosophy at the University of Sydney. And Kate Lynch is no stranger to the Philosopher's Zone. We'll put links to some of Kate's other programs on the website, where you can also find streaming and download links to this and all of our past programs. And of course, you can access all of that good stuff via the ABC Listen app as well. And I'm David Rutledge. It's been great to have you along this week, and I hope you can join me next time. See you then. Thank you.